This Dharma talk by Joan Sutherland Roshi, Freedom's Body 2, was given at Springs Mountain Sangha in Colorado Springs, Colorado, on October 15, 2009. This week, um, we've been talking in one way or another about a kind of fundamental mystery of being human which is um, if, if you spend some time in Zen practice and you spend some time with the philosophy and you begin to sort of uh, work with this sense of form and emptiness, why should it be that there's form and emptiness? Why should it be that things have two aspects that are so apparently different in contrast to each other? Um, why are we embodied? Why is it necessary for us to, to be embodied, to live in the world, to suffer dukkha, <laughs> to have all of these troubles in our lives, and to change, to move, to go from one place to another, and hopefully to go from one place to another and to change as we go, when at the same time there's this other aspect of everything that's already perfect and complete and radiant and eternal. You know, why, why not just live there? <laughs> and um, that seems to me to be a really important question in our practice. Why don't we just live there? Why don't we just all hang out and be radiant together and, and eternal and um, everything is kind of crystalline and nothing ever changes? But in fact, we spend so much of our time and energy in the other aspect of life, which is this unsatisfactory, changeable, evanescent, fleeting, heartbreaking, beautiful, tender, gorgeous, infuriating, painful um, span of time we spend in in a body and beyond. I'm not going to answer that question. (laughs) But I'm going to pose it because I think it's tremendously important to, to hold it while we're doing everything else. And, um, and I want to talk, play a little bit with it, talk a little bit about it, um, to offer some ways to hold this question and wonder about it. And one of them, one of them has to do with this, this thing about dukkha. If, if the nature of embodied life is a kind of incompleteness, which is not a problem, it, it, it's, it's its nature to be incomplete, it's supposed to be incomplete. If it were complete, it would be on that other side. It would be on the empty side. So its nature is to be incomplete. What's that about? Why should that be a positive value? And it seems to me that the most obvious answer in that is that it invites our participation. We live in a world that we are actively co-creating along with everything else. The empty world doesn't need to be co-created. It's done. It's finished already. But the world of form is constantly being made and unmade and remade by everything and everyone and all of us. And what an astonishing invitation that is. Help make the world. You got born, you're in a body, guess what you get to do? You get to help make the world along with everything else that's making the world. Wow. That's, that's really something. That's not a, an invitation to be sneezed at or grumbled at, you know, I think in some way. So um, then, if we, then if we think of it from that perspective, when we think about the incompleteness of things, the question becomes, as I was saying before, what can I bring 
that helps complete things. What can, I will never complete them, but I can help. What can I bring that creates more wholeness? What a great way to approach any situation, anything. The snarkiest little, meanest, nastiest, mingiest little interchange that you have with someone who you really can't abide. You know, from that to the greatest cosmic question of the meaning of your life, what can I bring that creates more wholeness? What's missing? What's incomplete? What's unperfected? And what can I do about that? What a great way to approach things. And this comes back around to something I was saying the first night, um, which is thinking about uh, relationship as a way of sanctifying each other. Sanctifying meaning um, to support the growing wholeness of each other, to support the increasing holiness of each other. It's exactly the same thing. To sanctify each other is to look for what will help make whole and um, to support the, the becoming whole of the other, whoever or whatever the other is. So um, from our largely embodied stance, one of the, one of the things we first want to check out is where are we not whole? Where are we incomplete? Before we begin mucking around in, in the rest of the world. There was a, um, a recent Japanese Zen master who, uh, named Uchiyama Roshi who had a, a really beautiful way of talking about it. He spoke of opening the hand of thought. And he said, so often the hand of our thought is clenched, either clenched in anger or fear, you know, contracted in some way, or it's grasping. It's mm-hmm. clenched in that it's grasping after something. But what if we open the hand of thought and offer that open hand of thought as a beginning toward making things more whole and more complete? So in this week, as we really focus on embodiment, Embody your mind. Look into your heart-mind. Notice what the quality of the hand of your heart-mind is. Is it clenched? Is it grasping? Is it open? What's going on? And can you, um, over and over and over again, open it when you notice that it's tightened up? Okay, so... If we have this aspect of, uh, of in-process happening, co-creation, and we have this process of already finished, already complete, are there parts of ourselves that kind of correspond to those aspects of, of the world? And there are. So I want to talk about them, but I want to talk about them really tentatively. This isn't some system I'm laying out. And, you know, when you leave tonight, just throw it away because it should, shouldn't really persist longer than the terms of this conversation. But maybe it will help us begin to, um, to, to imagine how we might reconcile and sanctify form and emptiness. How do we get those two things to marry each other? so that they're sanctifying each other all the time, so that we don't feel the split and the alienation of one from the other, which is a source of a lot of our, our suffering, a lot of our um, discontent with things. Okay, so we have 
um, tentatively speaking, arbitrarily speaking, a part of ourselves that we'll call for the moment spirit, which is that part which is at home in the vastness, at home in the emptiness. That's native to it. It completely understands that um, perfected, disembodied, crystalline nature of things. And um, it has its own way of belonging to that realm. And then on the other hand, we have this constellation of soul and body. And I'm finding it more and more difficult to pull soul and body apart. They seem to be so connected to me. And by soul, I mean that part of ourselves, um, which is what Sarah was talking about as, as the particular, the particular viewpoint. The soul is the part of us that loves some things and hates other things and longs for certain things and can't abide other things and, and, um, and, and feels sorrow and cares deeply and does all of that. All of that is the activity of the soul. And, um, you know, I think we know pretty well the activities of the body. So um, those things have been have been linked forever, and I wanted to uh, to read a couple of of small poems about the the um, the connection of the, of the soul and the body. Two poems I really love a lot. The first one is by Anna Sphere, and um, she's the author of the the poem we read at night as the words of the ancestors about always inside I carry light and silence. So this is a poem she wrote called The Soul and the Body on the Beach. The soul on the beach studies a textbook of philosophy. The soul asks the body, who bound us together? The body says, time to tan the knees. (laughs) The soul asks the body, is it true that we do not really exist? The body says, I'm tanning my knees. (laughs) The soul asks the body, where will the dying begin? In you? or in me the body laughs it tanned its knees <laughs> the whole thing the soul asks the body where will the dying begin in you or in me the body laughs it tanned its knees tanned tanned <laughs> How do you spell her last name? S-W-I-R. And she has um, several collections of poems, and they're pretty wonderful. She's a Polish poet, contemporary. Um, Okay, so then this this is a little poem that, um, surprisingly, the Roman Emperor Hadrian wrote (laughs) called um, To His Soul. Dear little fleeting, pleasing soul, the guest and comrade of my body, into what regions must you go now, pale little, cold little, naked little soul, without your old power of jesting? So the sense that when the soul is connected to the body, it has the ability to jest. It has the ability to laugh and play and make light. And without that connection to the body, it's this, where does it go? What happens to it? He wonders. But I love the sense of um, the, the affection for the soul and the sense of the guest and comrade of my body. So, so the, the soul and body connection is a part of us that's really connected to the world and connected to the earth. 
the part that anchors us, the part that um, loves and hates being alive at the same time. And um, one, one, one last quote. This was um, from the, the author of Alice Mon- Monroe, who wrote a um, memoir called The View from Castle Rock. And she was, uh, she's Canadian, and her forebears came from Scotland, and she found some of her their letters and journals and things they had written when they first came to Scotland several uh, came from Scotland to Canada several hundred years ago and she quotes um, a great 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 grandfather of hers near the end of his life as he's about to die and he spent his whole life on the land in Canada and he's talking about the way not only do we know a place but a place comes to know us which I really loved if we live in a place long enough It comes to know us. So he said, And the place that now knows us will soon know us no more, for we are all old, frail creatures. That was really poignant to me, that sense of being somewhere that knows us and then passing away so that 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 place will no longer know us. That's That's part of what our passing is. So um, in the interest of time, I'll just let me just say one more thing, and we can come back to, to some of this tomorrow. We've been talking tangentially about the nature of the self. There's the question in the koan about that, um, that self, that show sheltered. Did it exist before the empty kalpa? Does it exist before anything else? Which is a way of asking, what is the nature of the self? What is it, what is it exactly? And one of the things I want to say that seems really important to me is to talk about this place that Sarah is also talking about where the particular aspects of the self, the particularities, the things that make each of us uniquely our own selves, intersect with this sense of the spirit which, which knows emptiness, which is native to emptiness that we are neither one nor the other, and to get stuck in one or the other is to, is to be partial. If we think we are only our thoughts, feelings, obsessions, concerns, longings, um, opinions, that's being stuck in the inner landscape in a way that's partial. If we think that we're only these transcendent beings trapped in a body and our job is to get free, that's being trapped equally um, somewhere else. But if we meet in the intersection of those two places where the particular touches the very, very large, that's where the true self lives. That's where the self that isn't partial but partakes of all of it can be found. And the most important thing about that self is it's not inside of you. It's outside of you. It has to be outside of you. It has to be where you intersect with the, with the largeness of things, with the vastness. That's where your truest self is, not inside the thoughts and feelings and obsessions and concerns and all, and all of that, but where that meets a recognition of, an experience of, the vastness. So, so if you want to know, well, what is that self? What's it like? What's the view from that self? What are the eyes of that place? What does that look like? Think about the moments as the one that Trungpa described about just seeing the pine tree or just feeling the breeze. 
Um, think about the times when everything got radiant. Think about the times when the trees started talking to you, or whatever form it took. And and intersection doesn't occupy any space. Yeah. Okay. So, but just okay. remember that. Remember that experience, and remember the proportion of your sense of self in that moment. Remember how much room you took up in comparison to everything you were experiencing when you saw everything is radiant. That's your true self. Exactly that. That's yourself in that intersection outside, you know, what we usually think of as ourselves when we are really connected and we really know that, as, as, as we were saying last night, you can say, I'm feeling great today because I had a good night's sleep tonight or the wind is cool, the air is fresh. And that both of those are a report of the state of the self. Do you see what I'm saying? Both of those are a report of the state of the self simultaneously. And, and to know that, just remember what the self felt like in a moment when everything went radiant and everything went eternal. That's where you should live. Thank you all. These talks are made available through your donations to Cloud Dragon, the Joan Sutherland Dharma Works. To learn more about her teachings and to make a tax-deductible contribution, please visit our donate page at joansutherlanddharmaworks.org.